The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking on the educational system. We'll be talking with Ulrich Boser about what people think they know about education and why it's probably wrong. Then, we'll speak with education researcher Luis Leva about how math education privileges some at the expense of others. Finally, we'll speak with cognitive neuroscientist Susanna Dicker about taking neuroscience research out of the lab and into the classroom. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Most of the people listening to this podcast have probably spent some time in a formal education situation. You've maybe taken a science class or two and been told whether or not you've got a talent for math. You've listened to someone lecture. You've studied for an exam. But how much of the way that we teach and the way that we learn is backed up by science? And does it benefit some at the expense of others? To start to answer these questions, I'm here with Ulrich Boser. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and the author of the new book, Learn Better. Ulrich, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. It's an honor. Now, you've conducted a study as part of your research into the book into what people think they know about education. Why did you want to take that on? It's a great question. What we were really interested in was the degree to which people have learning, believe in learning myths. Right, that they believe in things about learning that that aren't true. And look, I, I want to be clear here at, at the top that I think there is an issue when it comes to learning, when it comes to education. We call in the paper the sort of been there, done that problem. And you know, if I were to watch an, a neuroscientist work, or a brain surgeon, or a lawyer reading a contract, or even you know a physical therapist doing what they do, I I wouldn't presume a level of knowledge that I would look behind them and be like, oh, of course, I know what they're doing right or wrong. Interesting to me is that in education, it seems that a lot of people believe that they can sit in the back of a classroom uh, and really identify what great teaching and learning looks like. And that's really what we wanted to document with this study, the gap between what people believed and what was really true. And we found that wide swaths, most people believe that they're above average at identifying uh, great teaching and and learning. But then when we asked them specific questions uh, about what the science shows to be true, um, they were often just frankly wrong. Now, why do you think people think they know so much about education? As you mentioned, you know, I wouldn't go to the doctor and say that I now know how to doctor you know, but people spend time in classrooms and think they know about education. Why is that? Well, one, you know, most people have spent quite a bit of time in schools and that gives them, you know, uh, uh, that makes them just simply feel like they have that expertise, right? Uh, many of these things are, are heuristics, right? That people like Daniel Kahneman have, have written about a lot. But if you do something a lot, you think you're pretty good at it. Yet that actually isn't necessarily true, right? I mean, I started driving when I was 18. I drive just about every day. And I have to admit to you that I'm no better at, at driving than I was at, at 18. And, you know, what we see with education is that people um, seem to believe because they went to school that they themselves are, are experts in education. And when we sort of said, okay, well, you know, you, 
you seem to believe that that's true. Let's try and test some of these hypotheses. You know, what we saw was, you know, they, they made these uh, gas. Now, on one side, people are simply overconfident. We're all overconfident. You know, if I go into a room of people, most people believe that they're uh, people believe that they're above average in, you know, how hard they work. Most people believe that they are, in fact, you know, above average drivers. Uh, so people are, are overconfident. This allows us to, to get a lot of things done. You know, I, if I suffered from crises of confidence, I wouldn't, you know, participate in, in, a, in a podcast. But it makes us often uh, make, you know, what I think is weak policy choices, which what we see often in, in education, and also makes other difficulties when we think about how we want to educate our students and how we want to have uh, classrooms that, that work for all students. I will go ahead and admit on the record right now that I actually think I'm a below average driver <laughs> because <laughs> well, I, I cannot manage a traffic circle to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate your, your honesty and, you know, the, the, the you know, social psychologists, the behavioral economics uh, experts of the world would, would be impressed with your frankness. Now, why is it a problem that people know so little about how learning works but act with such confidence. You mentioned to yourself that, yeah, we have a lot of false beliefs about our own competence, but, you know, we'd never get anything done if we didn't. So why is this a problem? So it's a problem for a number of reasons. One, we see a lot of debates around education, and they largely focus on these governance issues, right? So should the mayor control the school system? Should we have vouchers or not have vouchers? But there's very little conversation about good, effective teaching practices. Another example of this is, you know, in our survey, we asked people, you know, do you think that a, a great teacher can teach any subject? And many people said yes. I kind of think of this as the Robin Williams problem of teaching, right? We have this idea that if someone is just simply charismatic, right, if they're funny and filled with energy and, and have that, um, you know, Robin Williams, right, he became, he's done such a great job. Uh, displaying those really dramatic teachers over the years. But the research is very clear that people, to be great teachers, you know, certainly those things are important. But what we also know is important is knowing your subject matter. And, and what's also important uh, on top of that is also knowing how to teach your subject matter. And that means, quite frankly, that a great physics teacher can't suddenly become overnight a great phys ed teacher or a great kindergarten teacher. And I think that helps us understand, you know, why we often pay teachers so low, uh, why we often pay all teachers the same, right? Uh, many school systems around the world operate on salary schedules, which basically ensure that the physics teacher gets paid the same as the art teacher in an elementary school. And we see the same things in, in universities. And so assuming that there is no science of, of teaching, uh, no science of learning makes us, uh, I think, make short-sighted policy decisions and also just roll out programs and make decisions around schools that aren't really the, the best decisions. Now, you conducted a study of about 3,000 people uh, given a survey using Amazon's Mechanical Turk, uh, mm -hmm. asking them about what they knew about uh, education and the science of learning. And you mentioned, uh, for example, that people felt that they could, that any, a good teacher could teach anything. What other kinds of myths did people end up kind of ascribing to about learning? I mean, the, the thing, there were a number of things that precipitated this study, but one of them is 
I work in a, in a law school often, uh, largely, frankly, because there's no Wi-Fi. That means I can get a lot of stuff done. But, you know, I'll go to this, wi- this uh, Wi-Fi-less law school and I see the law school students studying there. And, and you know, these are people who've um, been in school and we can, you know, quibble about the numbers. But, you know, uh, almost two decades and they love highlighters, right? And there's some students in there that have multicolored highlighters. Here's the remarkable thing. There's no evidence behind highlighters, right? <laughs> We've had really some of the top people in the education field look through, you know, highlighting, uh, rereading practices that are incredibly common in schools uh, around the, the world and no evidence behind them. And you know, it's remarkable to me because it's just in one, it's just simply inefficient. These students have a lot of things that they need to study, uh, lots of things that they need to, to learn, and they're just simply better uh, ways, to, ways to do it. I have to admit now that I am not only a multicolor highlighter person, I have multicolor erasable gel pens. <laughs> Well, you know, we're, we're going to have to, uh, you know, keep a, a running list here, right? First, we've had the confession about the traffic circles. Now, the multicolored highlighters, you know, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll come across some other things that you do that are, are great practice. And I'm sure there will be. <laughs> You're killing me here. <laughs> I do rereading. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, about 90% of your respondents in your study thought that students should receive information in accordance with their learning styles. So, for example, if they were audio learners, they should receive audio instruction. Visual learners should receive visual instruction. What does research have to say about learning styles? Yeah, so the research is very, very clear on learning styles. And quite frankly, they don't exist, right? The way that learning styles are commonly defined, uh, very little evidence for it. What's clear, I should be clear about is sort of what experts talk about when they talk about learning styles. And that is the idea that people have a preferred learning style. So maybe you're an auditory learner. And that means everything that comes across your desk, everything that you want to learn, whether it's how to use your iPhone or to, you know, get better at, at, at Shakespeare or to program computers, whatever it might be, you want to be an auditory learner. And one, I think, you know, when you think about this, just using common sense, it, it does really fall apart, right? So maybe many of the listeners of the podcast are audio listeners, which is they listen to, uh, and that's why they, you know, love the podcast. But look, I think we can all agree that if you want to learn to play soccer, it's not great to learn it auditorily, right? I mean, I think I could give people some very basic ideas. You got to kick the ball. Don't lose your hands. You know, when you're just practicing, use the inside of your foot. But ultimately, to get good at soccer, you need to go out there and, and play soccer. And so what we see um, in, in a whole lot of research is that telling people, you know, are you a kinesthetic learner or are you a you know visual learner? And what ends up being much more important is the material itself, right? That there's some material that is simply better learned uh, auditorily and, and some material that might be better learned uh, kinesthetically, right? Uh, you know, physically like, like soccer. One thing I, I should add here is like so many myths, there is a bit of truth to learning styles. And I think it often represents the fact that people are different, right? And we know that is true. I think research is very clear on that. You know, some people have different interests. Some people have different personalities. Some people might know uh, more about a field. And I think in education, we're a little bit inarticulate in the ways that we talk about that that issue. And so learning styles has become this kind of catch-all for that when, you know, it, it, it doesn't stand, uh, I think, sort of to the common tense 
common sense test, but uh, more importantly, really, uh, research doesn't support it. And you also found something that I found especially disturbing. More than a quarter of your respondents thought that intelligence was fixed at birth and that you should praise kids for being smart. What does research have to say about that? Yeah, so let's take the intelligence is is fixed at at birth idea. You know, one thing I should sort of highlight is, you know, some of these issues are are really research issues. And what was surprising to us is that people are very willing to say that they're, you know, they know a lot about this field, but then around this uh, topic, like is intelligence fixed or not? Um, So look, so what is intelligence is the first question, right? It's your ability to learn, solve new problems. And what we know is that there are some interventions uh, today that that will increase intelligence. Uh, So uh, preschool is one is uh, been widely showed to um, you know increase intelligence, and we've also seen something known as the the Flynn effect. But in a lot of developing or first world nations that have come out of uh, developing nations, their intelligence writ large has gotten higher over time, which really sort of shouldn't happen if intelligence is this uh, fixed thing, right? That you're measuring something like like height. So that's the f- fixed intelligence. The other idea. Um, and, and frankly, I'm going to be honest that I was surprised that people didn't know this one as much, but there's this work done by Carol Dweck. It, it is, it litters the, uh, self-help, uh, magazines and books. And, and basically she has a, a wonderful idea. Um, and that's this is that if you praise people for being smart, they're going to have a, a fixed mindset. In other means, they're going to believe in their own life. They just have a certain amount of talent. And if they're not good at, um, you know, uh, playing the piano, they're just going to give up because they didn't have talent. And then there's some people who, what she describes as having a growth mindset. You know, they believe that their talents are a little bit more malleable, whether it's opera singing or reading. And so they're more willing to, to try new things. And Dweck's work has been seminal. It's kicked off a whole subfield of psychology. And I made the joke around self-help books because a lot of uh, people have been trying to translate her academic and, and very well respected work into um you know sort of the the kind of self-help gurus type stuff but you know very well respected in the academic literature but clearly has not actually uh, gotten into the field enough we found a lot of people believing that people should be praised uh for for being smart um and you know uh, interestingly enough you even alluded to it at the top of the show you know kids being told that they have a, a talent for math as opposed to saying that you know math is something that you get good at if you really practice it over time and why are views like that a problem say you know a fixed mindset why why is that an issue yes well what's really interesting about carol dweck's work is sort of how widespread it is is that if you have a, a fixed mindset right if you think you either have something or you don't you're you're just much less likely to try to practice and what she's been able to show is that this is true even in in marriages right that if you have a mindset right that your view of the world is either we're going to be romeo and juliet love each other forever right or it's not going to work you're just like the first fight you're like ah this wasn't the person for me and you'll you know maybe move on to a new spouse but if you have a mindset that's like well you know if we come together if we really try 
uh, we're going to, you know, work this out. And, and so this mindset, this is sort of a way that you judge and perceive the world, uh, can have an impact. And, and we've seen in, in many things, um, so relationships being one, uh, the degree to which you forgive other people for hurting you being another. And in learning, it's particularly important because learning is often hard. And if you're told that you have an, an innate ability for math or an innate ability for philosophy or an innate ability for reading, you know, you're going to be much less likely to really try those things and, and engage in these behaviors that are really important, right? Which is struggle and practice and doing all those things that are often quite, quite difficult. And you also noted in your paper that there's a lot of perpetuation of these learning myths. A lot of people don't know what they don't know about learning. And a lot of those people are, you know, parents or they are in school themselves, or maybe they are teachers, you never know. <laughs> what do you think needs to be done to help the public overcome all of the learning myths that we have? I think one, we should, you know, just try and do a, a better effort at making sure our teachers and educators are using these uh, principles of the science of learning. I should say that, you know, I've seen my own kids coming home from schools, uh, and they do all their multiplications, uh, tables in, in one fashion. We know that mixing up your practice is very effective. I've had my own children's teachers ask me, you know, what their learning style is. So one, I think many schools have, you know, lied for a number of reasons, uh, in this, in this space. You know, the other thing about myths is that, you know, they often are rooted in, in some sort of truth and, and they, uh, tend to be very hard to, um, expose, right? And to a degree, you know, some of these things like, you know, the earth is flat. Like when I go outside today, you know, the earth looks very flat. So I sort of assume it to be flat. Um, I think we you know, need to do more than to actively show people the, the power of these ways. Right. And one of the reasons that we most of us at least believe that the world is, you know, round is, is you start to have people provide these types of of insights, and I think we need to do the same thing with the science of learning, sort of showing that these techniques can allow you to uh, gain expertise in, in far more effective ways. And you look at something like quizzing yourself, you know, it's it's very clear that uh, it can provide these tremendous gains. Uh, some studies, you know, you're looking at 30 or 40 percent more than simply uh, rereading. So putting down your multicolored highlighters, uh, making sure that you're really engaged in a material has these tremendous effects. And, and I think uh, as such, just presenting them as you know ways to, to be more efficient about your learning is going to be uh, key. Well, Ulrich, thank you so much for chatting with us. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. We've linked to Ulrich Boser's study and information about his book at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we'll be speaking with Luis Levia about racial bias and how it creeps into even the purest subject math education. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. 
Math is often described as the purest of pure studies, the underlying basis of physics, chemistry, and biology, which is free from bias and all about your natural ability or working hard. But math is done by people, and that means it's never free from bias. I'm here now with Luis Leva, a professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt University. He's published a recent paper in the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education called A Framework for Understanding Whiteness in Mathematics Education. Luis, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, and thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, what first got you interested in studying issues of inequality in math? My interest in math education, I would say, really began um, more from a personal experience in being a mathematics major in college and really thinking about how those classroom spaces are not just academic in nature, but also social in nature. So really thinking about relationships that you might be building um, with your instructors or your professors, relationships that you might be building uh, with peers in your classrooms and also outside of the classroom. So even thinking about um, student support programs that exist on campus, uh, particularly for marginalized student groups who are, who are pursuing mathematics and other uh, disciplines in the sciences. And when you wrote about like whiteness in mathematics education, can we start with kind of what you mean when you talk about whiteness in this context? Certainly. So for this project, what um, my co-author Dan Beatty and I try to do is um, we really try to kind of uh, detail the operation of, of white supremacy. So with white supremacy, really thinking about how systematically notions of racial and particularly white privilege are maintained in mathematics education. Uh, so by whiteness, it's really um, a perspective or an ideology that is operating to maintain white supremacy and then our arguments maintaining white supremacy in the context of math education. So what we really wanted to try to do in this paper is to talk about how this ideology or perspectives of whiteness um, have a dual nature to them. One, marginalizing uh, students of color um, and their agency within mathematics spaces but at the same time, how does whiteness operate and in terms of its impact on white students to reproduce racial privilege in mathematics? And can you kind of detail that? How exactly does whiteness manifest in the math classroom? A lot of people may, who, who are white in particular, may never really notice it. So how does this kind of become apparent? That's a great question. So um, in really thinking about how whiteness operates in mathematics and in mathematics education, one of the things that um, that uh, Dane Beatty, my co-author, and I tried to do in the piece is we offered um, a section on how whiteness has been detailed in the field of mathematics education thus far. And in those examples that we cite from the literature, um, they also map on to the three dimensions that we introduce in our framework on whiteness. So if you really think about in, at the inst more institutional level, um, we can begin to see whiteness operating as one example in terms of students' access to advanced mathematics. So if there is an inequitable um, level of access that students have racially in terms of being able to access mathematics, which is then providing students with opportunities um, to develop academically and professionally from there, we begin to see whiteness operating in that regard. Um, at a more interpersonal level, um, so thinking about the work that David Stinson has done, for example, in the field, um, in his work with young African-American males, he was working uh, to kind of learn about how these men were engaging with, with this idea of this notion of acting white, 
in mathematics and the burden of acting white. So we begin to see how interpersonally even students among themselves might be positioning one another as being more or less aligned with the ideal or the norm of being white, of being academically high, I'm sorry, of being more academically achieving um, in mathematics. But with that comes this idea of being able to kind of um, negotiate your own racial identities along with academic success. And we can begin to see that more interpersonally um, in that particular work about negotiating this burden of, of the sense of acting white. Um, in terms of more like, uh, in terms of like identity or in terms of um, ideologies, we really begin to see how um, in terms of academic achievement, even um, act like Asian American students tend to outperform whites. But we begin to see whiteness operating here where white uh, where white students aren't necessarily kind of tied to deficient frames of being able to do um, mathematics. So we begin to see that there is no kind of pathologization um, or the, I'm sorry, let me re, uh, rephrase that. There's no pathologizing of white students, even though they might be underachieving compared to their Asian American counterparts. So even through notions of how we're framing students, um, we begin to see whiteness operating in mathematics education. And there is this kind of persistent belief that white and Asian identifying people are better at math than other racial groups. Where does this idea even come from? It really comes from this idea of um, like a, a hierarchy of mathematical ability. So even when we begin to see position students as being able to do mathematics, um, being able to um, be more capable of doing mathematics, I should say, we begin to really begin to think about how the idea of doing mathematics is aligned with the white norms of behaviors and, um, and actions of doing math, right? So the more that you begin to align yourself with those norms, um, then you're kind of ascribed to being um, more or less capable of doing math. But we begin to see how that those ideas of what it means to actually be good or being capable of mathematics are actually framed by notions of, of whiteness. Um, so that's how we begin to kind of see these kinds of discourses about white students and Asian American students being positioned much higher up amongst this hierarchy of mathematical ability, whereas students of color are positioned as, as lower along that hierarchy. Now, you mentioned that there is an institutional access issue, and I think probably people are pretty familiar with the issues that, you know, um, schools that are predominantly minority, for example, in the United States tend to receive less funding. They may not have high-level math courses available, whereas some very, you know, high-income areas that are very predominantly white will have much, you know, higher access to math. But you also talked about behavioral norms and whiteness. What are some of these norms that people might not think about that kind of perpetuate this bias? Uh, so one possibility to think about is um, this idea of microaggressions, right, in terms of microaggressions of mathematical ability. And by microaggressions, thinking about these moment by moment kind of communicative episodes that you might engage with where you might be communicating um, some form of beliefs about an individual's mathematical ability. So particularly among students of color in mathematics, they're kind of constantly kind of um, managing these microaggressions that are happening within school spaces. So students of color might be kind of engaged in emotions such as being dissatisfied or angered or frustrated, which are often deemed um, to be unacceptable in school spaces. And there's oftentimes 
Um, not there's spaces aren't necessarily kind of carved out for students to be able to kind of process those emotions. And so that could be an example of how emotion, it's kind of like an emotionally charged behavior, right? But it's coming from um, experiences of having to, to kind of manage these microaggressions that are really shaped by these white institutional spaces in mathematics, such as mathematics classrooms. Um, and so then by not having kind of room for processing in these school spaces, um, then, uh, then these kind of behaviors are kind of deemed and perceived to be unacceptable by teachers and by other school officials. Um, so that would that would be one example that I can offer in terms of uh, behavior. And when you wrote this paper on whiteness in math, you laid out a framework for how exactly math education is a white space. And you talked a bit about institutional bias, which we already kind of talked about. I was particularly interested in the dimension of identity. How does identity play into the whiteness of math? Sure. So in terms of identity, um, kind of going back to this idea of who's perceived as being a legitimate math doer of mathematics, students of color tend to, their, their legitimacy in terms of being able to do mathematics is, is often under question, right? So this kind of positions students uh, of color to be placed in, in moments where they kind of need to prove themselves um, as being successful in mathematics. Now, with that, we begin, we begin to see how students of color get to begin to kind of co-construct or kind of negotiate their own social identities with discourses of who is a doer of mathematics and who isn't, which results in these kind of experiences of students of color needing to kind of prove themselves. Now, by needing to prove themselves, we begin to kind of see the operation of whiteness here, right? So some students begin to kind of adopt strategies to kind of navigate those experiences to maintain, um, to try to maintain their identities while navigating these kind of discourses that exist about who is a legitimate doer of mathematics. So oftentimes we begin to see how students of color might begin to reject themselves racially um, or see themselves as exceptions to other students of color in doing mathematics or even downplaying their success in math. But all of those examples of those strategies really help um, bring us to see how whiteness is still being perpetuated there. Um, one example, though, I'm thinking about is the work of Danny Marn and Ebony McGee, who have written about um, stereotype management. So this idea of not just necessarily proving themselves, but having more kind of internal um, motivations to be successful as opposed to the emotionally exhaustive process of having to constantly prove themselves. And this is, and, but through stereotype management, this is a way to be able to actually directly challenge a lot of those norms of whiteness that shape the nature of mathematics, um, which is a contrast to the, some of the other examples about, you know, rejecting oneself racially in this space or downplaying the, their success. Whereas those strategies don't really kind of put, um, cha directly challenge or disrupt some of those norms of whiteness in mathematics. And you also talked a lot about in the paper about the idea of differences in cognitive labor in the math classroom required for white people as opposed to people of color. Can you talk about what you mean when you talk about differences in cognitive labor? Sure. So in terms of cognitive labor or, or uh, like cognitive demand, um, so even when you think about the tasks and that and students are um, given in mathematics classrooms, often those tasks or those opportunities to engage with mathematics are often framed by teachers' perceptions of students' mathematical ability. So if a, a teacher has a particular perception that a student might be less mathematically able, then the cognitive demand of that task might be lower in nature. Um, 
So we begin to kind of this we begin to see here inequitable forms of access to higher cognitive demands of tasks um, in their mathematical engagement in the classroom. So, for example, a classroom that's predominantly people of color may be doing a lot more worksheets and question sets than, say, a more creative mathematics classroom that is, you know, more predominantly white and also probably in a higher uh, socioeconomic kind of situation. Right. That could, so that would be one example. Um, in terms of the cognitive labor piece, in terms of the dimension itself uh, from the framework, another possibility, another um, possible dynamic that might be, might be at play here is um, the cognitive labor that that students of color might be kind of engaging with when they're interacting with other like classmates in small group work, for example. So if there is notions of kind of stereotype threat or implicit forms of racism in terms of how they're being perceived by either their classmates or by their teachers in terms of doing mathematics, then that also places an, uh, uh, um, uh, a certain form of cognitive labor of having to manage some of those ideas, right? While at the same time trying to engage with the mathematics at hand. So there's a lot of effort being put into how the students are presenting themselves that could otherwise be put into actually doing the math. Exactly. Now, a lot of people want to say that they don't see color, or that they want to treat everyone in a way that is colorblind, and might say that a mathematics classroom should just be colorblind. What are some of the issues with that idea? What's problematic about um, ideas about colorblindness is that they are tied to uh, notions of whiteness and, and operation in mathematics and mathematics education. Um, kind of this idea that everything is kind of seemingly done in neutral and objective ways. So one way that I'm thinking about how this could be problematic is the notions of, you know, innateness of mathematical ability. So it doesn't matter who you are, what race you are, or ethnicity, right? Um, you know, you, you could just do math because you just are, you can innately do that. But that becomes problematic when we begin to tie that to uh, what we see in terms of the inequitable access to high quality mathematics, right? Or even if you look at achievement scores, because when we begin to couple this idea of anyone can kind of do math because it's something that's that you have innately as part of you, and we couple that with um, academic achievement disparities that we're seeing um, among white students and students of color, then we begin to position students of color as being innately deficient about being able to do mathematics, right? So what's beginning to be uh, really problematic is that as we continue to kind of perpetuate these colorblind perspectives, such as this view of, of, of innate mathematical ability, what we're really doing is we're really beginning to position those that are not succeeding um, as being viewed as inherently deficient to be able to do and succeed in mathematics. How does the idea of whiteness in math end up impacting math? You know, what uh, higher level mathematics ends up looking like? We only teach math from a Western perspective. We don't know, for example, if uh, Native American peoples may have had different math theorems because they didn't write them down. So and we never learned them. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we don't actually know if they've there are other theorems out there that we may have missed. Mm -hmm. I think one thing, to, uh, and let, please let me know if this addresses the question. So I'm thinking about um, issues of status that happen that are existent in mathematics classrooms. So you know, with this idea that there that through whiteness perpetuating a hierarchy of mathematical ability, what oftentimes ends up happening in classrooms is that um, students tend to acquire lower, or higher forms of status and be positioned. 
um, and higher or lower um, levels of the hierarchy within their math classroom spaces. But if teachers begin to adopt instructional practices that really begin to kind of disrupt and challenge the creation of some of those practices, um, so even beginning to think about um, being reflective of what frames we bring in about who is in our classroom and how those frames really begin to shape the nature of, of you know, what assignments we, we offer to students in our classrooms, what kinds of questions do we pose in our mathematics classrooms and to who and to which students are we posing such questions, right? And making sure that those kinds of task designs and um, crafting of questions um, doesn't necessarily kind of perpetuate uh, forms of status of mathematical ability in the classroom, then we be can begin to kind of see um, more opportunities for students to connect with mathematics. And even in some of my work outside of, of the paper, um, of this paper on, on the framework of whiteness, I've begun to see, you know, students talk about how much they kind of um, end up pursuing um, STEM majors such as mathematics or even pursuing mathematics education as a career because they were able to kind of connect um, with a teacher or also with the mathematics that was done um, earlier in their in their academic trajectory, such as in high school. So when we really begin to think about how we can really support how we see mathematics as a field to look like in the future, I would argue that we really have to begin to um, deduce a lot of work to be able to disrupt the operation of whiteness that creates forms of status in these classroom spaces through the quality of our instruction to make sure that we are providing equitable forms of opportunities for students to connect with the with the mathematics and therefore kind of begin to see themselves and identify and seeing themselves with the domain and with it as a, as a professional career. And what do you think needs to be done to help make that happen? What does the ideal classroom look like? Hmm. So I think one thing is to not necessarily kind of silence um, social issues in mathematics classrooms, right? So, you know, even teachers who can kind of bring in stories about maybe their own personal challenges with mathematics, um, providing students with the opportunity to kind of express their own um, kind of struggles with the mathematics without necessarily kind of um, kind of feeling as though they have to be cautious about presenting those kinds of experiences and how that's going to be read by their teachers or by their peers in the classroom space in ways that might be positioning them um, as being more or less successful with the mathematics is something that's important, right? So when I'm thinking about these classroom spaces, um, I'm really thinking about having teachers who really are aware of what perspectives and frames they bring in about students in their classrooms. And through that sense of self and critical awareness, that will really begin to help teachers to be able to be more intentional, intentional in being able to establish more equitable forms of participation in their classroom. Um, even when we think about, you know, students being able to kind of speak to one another um, in the classroom. So oftentimes, you know, the perpetuation of status in mathematics classrooms might be tied to the fact that maybe students aren't even talking to one another. So if a lot of the communication is just teacher to student in these classroom spaces, we kind of are left with just students are often just left with this, these preconceived ideas that they may be coming in with into the classroom about who does, uh, who is good at mathematics and who isn't good at mathematics, as an example. 
And so without being able to kind of provide students an opportunity to kind of connect with their peers and thus opportunities to be able to disrupt some of those racialized preconceptions of, 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 you know, who is a doer and who isn't a doer of mathematics. I think that being able to provide those opportunities for, for, um, for those preconceptions to be challenged while doing the work of mathematics in a classroom is something that, uh, definitely would be something that I would look for in a more equitable classroom space. Luis, thank you so much for being here. This paper taught me a lot. Oh, thank you so much. And I appreciate the opportunity for um, being here and, and joining the conversation with you today. We've linked to Luis's paper on whiteness in math education and other coverage on the paper at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, I'll be speaking with cognitive neuroscientist Susanna Dicker about what real-time brain recordings can teach us about the classroom. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm here with Susanna Dicker, a cognitive neuroscientist at Utrecht University in the Netherlands and New York University. Susanna has published a recent study in the journal Current Biology on how students learning the same material at the same time can exhibit something called brain-to-brain synchrony. And she's here to tell us what the heck that means. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, let's start with a definition first. What exactly is brain-to-brain synchrony? Because it sounds like telepathy, and I know that can't be right. Right. Um, well, we also think that can't be right. Um, some people might disagree, obviously, but our, um, our our null hypothesis is that there is no such thing as telepathy. And so what we mean by brain-to-brain synchrony is that brainwave patterns between multiple people are very similar to each other. So that means that if you're that the neurons firing in your head do that at a similar rhythm, um, sometimes even at the same at the same time as those of other people around you. Um, yeah. And you study brain to brain synchrony uh, using EEG. What is EEG and how does it work? Um, so EEG uh, consists in the case that we're using it, it consists of a small headset that you put on your head with 14 electrodes um, that sit on your scalp. Um, and we make the electrodes a little wet so that we uh, to increase the conductivity. And they function then as kind of like microphones that are trying to listen in on your brain what is going on inside. And what they're picking up is what we call brain waves. Um, and brain waves are the result of large groups of neurons firing together. Um, so for example, if you play a loud sound, um, like a, a clap or whatever, then you can, your brain, uh, your neurons in your auditory cortex are going to re- together respond very strongly to that loud sound and that we can pick up in your, uh, in, in the EEG as a peak in electrical activity. Um, but so we're not, we're not able to listen in on individual neurons and we're also not able to determine exactly where the activity is coming from from like a micro like microphones that are sitting at different spots in the room 
um, list trying to figure out where the sound exactly is coming from is a very difficult task. So we're really looking more at the timing, like when do brain waves go up and down and the frequency at what rate do they do that? So maybe, um, you may have heard of alpha waves, for example, they oscillate at around 10 Hertz, which is 10 times a second. Um, then there are other waves like theta waves that are, that oscillate around four to seven times a second, like the rhythm of my speech, etc. And so that's what we can capture, not so much where uh, in the brain those uh, jumps in electrical activity are generated. And what do these electrical impulses, these electrical measurements, what do they signify when you measure them? That's the, that's the big question that people are trying to find out. Um, and we don't have, you know, a hundred percent foolproof answers to that question. Um, but what we're, so what we do is we try to understand the relationship between brain waves and things and, uh, that we know, uh, people perceive or, um, uh, or feel like emotions. Um, one thing we know, for example, is that those alpha waves that I mentioned are very, uh, associated with people's level of attention and engagement. So we know that when people close their eyes, their alpha waves go are all over the place. And then when they open them and when, and the more they focus, um, there is less, they get suppressed. Um, we also know that uh, the theta waves that I mentioned follow the rhythms of people's speech. And so they probably have something to do with analyzing what people are saying um, and so forth. And you've previously studied brain-to-brain synchrony in pairs of people. Why did you decide to bring this to a classroom? Because, well, for two reasons. For one, we are very interested in group dynamics, um, not just uh, dyadic interactions, uh, uh, dyadic meaning pairwise. Um, people interact in pairs all the time, but they also interact in groups. And a classroom-type setting or a setting where you're working in a team or a setting where you're together watching a movie in a theater or even walking down the street usually involves more than just two people. And so we want to ex- wanted to expand our horizon, so to speak, beyond the pairwise interaction. So we wanted to go into the classroom for two reasons. For one, we know uh, most of what we know about social interaction comes from these very highly controlled laboratory studies where people are in isolated rooms with their heads shoved into a machine. And those are supposed to mimic naturalistic interaction. But we don't actually know to what extent that really reflects what we do in a day to day basis. So we wanted to go to a real world environment. And then we went into the classroom specifically because that, um, uh, because the classroom bears some similarity to that laboratory because you want, uh, having a controlled environment is a good thing for scientific purposes. Um, kids are used to engaging in a series of, you know, predetermined activities for short, amounts of time, like watch a video for three minutes or do this task for five minutes. Um, and they're also used to sit still and listen, which in a lot of other dynamic group contexts is not exactly the case where people can just freely interact uh, and contribute at all times. 
Um, so yeah, so that's why we went we uh, went into the classroom. So um, and me- yeah, you handed EEG headsets to a bunch of high school students. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me exactly how this experiment worked? Sure. So um, that's exactly right. What you said. We handed the EEG sets to the students. We involved the students as much as possible in the process, um, and that was for uh, two reasons. We wanted to give the students back and uh, something for contributing their time as a thank you, but we also uh, wanted them to be super invested in the project so that they would sit, actually sit still and do the thing that we wanted them to do. Um, so we started the year um, in September with uh, a, a crash course in neuroscience and psychology with the high schoolers, gave them some brief overview of what brainwaves are um, and t- taught them how to work with the equipment. Um, and we uh, taught them about, you know, scientific process, hypothesis testing, etc. And then they helped us brainstorm about what the study would look like that they then would be the participants in. Um, and so we took over the classroom for the entire year, the class for the entire year, the teacher uh, amazingly um, tailored his uh, curriculum to the format that we wanted. So for each uh, for each uh, class, which was it was their regular biology class, for each class he found videos that were about the content that he wanted to teach them. Um, he lectured in that content and he uh, posed group discussion questions so that we could follow the regime that regime that we wanted to do for our experimental design, which had the goal of comparing. Um, brain-to-brain synchrony in the students to these different kinds of teaching styles. Um, and so for we came back 11 times, uh, recorded the brain activity of the kids. They helped. We handed them the EEG sets at the beginning of the class. They helped each other set up. And then we recorded their brain activity for 40 minutes doing these different kinds of teaching styles, um, repeated this 11 times. And then at the end of the school year in the spring semester, we helped students generate their own research project, uh, which they designed, um, created hypotheses for, uh, recorded the data, analyzed the data, and then presented the data from this um uh, using the same EEG headsets that we've been using. And you were looking at different kinds of class activities, and you found that lecture did not do particularly well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was wondering if you could take us through some of the findings in terms of how students reacted to different class activities. Sure. So we had we started out with four different uh, class activities. Um, students watched instructional videos. Um, they were lectured to by the teacher. Um, and specifically, they were also asked not to ask many questions during this lecture because movement in your face uh, is actually detrimental to the data quality. Um, so there was lecture. Um, there were group discussions, um, which I said, like the teacher posed some question and they had a group discussion for five to ten minutes. And then uh, there also was uh, the first five classes. We also had this uh, super old school teaching style where the teacher just read from his notes. Um, um, some of you may have uh, had that still in their colleges. I, w- I did a year abroad in Spain and there you can there the, the professors walked into the classroom, read from their notes and all the kids copied from that from the notes. But after five times, we ended that because kids were not learning anything from that uh, from that type, that style of teaching. Um, and so then we found that, um, lecture and the reading aloud were liked 
least. Um, and pro- possibly that's because the kids were not really allowed to make it interactive at all. But then really, and kids enjoyed the videos and they enjoyed engaging in group discussion. And those were also the uh, class styles where we saw the highest brain to brain synchrony. Uh, and we saw, we observed a direct relationship correlation between how in sync the brain waves of any given student were with the rest of the group. Um, in relation to their self-reported level of engagement, how much did they like a particular teaching style? And you saw this increase in brain-to-brain synchrony that was correlated with their liking certain teaching styles. What does that What does that brain-to-brain synchrony mean in this context? So what we think it means is that it's an index of shared attention. So if you are, we know from laboratory studies that if you are paying attention to uh, a speaker, for for example, telling you a story, then your brain waves follow the contour of that speech, um, the theta waves again that I was mentioning earlier, um, and that allows you to then uh, better understand what the person is saying. So what we think we're observing is that each the student who is more engaged is also more attentive and thereby. Uh, follows more narrowly the speech contour of the teacher or whatever audiovisual input the uh, the video is giving, um, and that will then subsequently uh, result in higher synchrony with the rest of the group if more kids are also engaged in that material. So it's more of a measure of, of group engagement. Yeah. We think it's a measure a measure of group engagement. What does it mean for learning? Does it mean anything for how well the kids are retaining information or understanding concepts? So we don't have a metric of performance in this particular study. We went into a second study where a uh, second school, sorry, where we also recorded from a class of uh, biology seniors, um, and there we asked a multiple choice question after the class um, and found that there is also so kids also remembered more from the videos than from the lectures. But we didn't see a direct relationship between brain-to-brain synchrony and learning, though we think that there must be one, right? So there, that it, your attention must have some consequence in terms of memory. Um, we just haven't we just haven't observed that from our study. There are some laboratory studies that do show that um, if you show people engaging videos versus less engaging videos, their brains sync up more and the and people remember more. Uh, but th- that's from the lab. We just haven't res- observed that yet in our classroom per se. But there are strong indications that there should be a relationship between synchrony and learning. And do you hope to kind of tease out this relationship between synchrony? and learning? How, how do you want to kind of get at that question? So we can use, you know, we can, we, we can analyze data after the fact and see if like overall there was a relationship between synchrony and learning. Well, you can also do perhaps, and that maybe gives the added value of using uh, of scanning kids' brain going through all those motions is that you can um, see, for example, later on tests or however you evaluate kids' knowledge, what they remember better or what they what kind of knowledge they have internalized better, and then go back to moments where um, where they were exposed to that kind of material and see if that those were moments during class where their brains were also synchronizing 
exercising more than for moments where they were not, uh, uh, that they didn't remember later. And you can see what kinds of uh, materials the teacher were using or what kinds of strategy um, to have an extra source of information, what our brain does during moments of learning. And this is, I think, the first study to actually look at EEG in a larger group of people acting in a group context instead of just in pairs, right? Yeah, there are some studies looking at smaller teams, but to our knowledge, um, and I don't want to say 100% sure, right? So we, I don't, uh, there may be teams that have been working on this uh, similar kind of study, but to our knowledge, we are at least among the first to go out in the real world and repeatedly record brain activity from a group of people in a naturalistic context. And why is that really important for the future? It's important because, well, for one, we were, um, people put like the, the National Science Foundation and the Netherlands um, Organization for Scientific Research put faith in us to do a project that is very high risk. Um, and we, uh, completed it with, um, some success and more than I expected, to be honest. Um, and now, uh, they can, this means that other researchers can use our, um, success story as, uh, as a way to conduct, um, similar, maybe even better research, um, based on what we've already done and got the, the luxury really to try this out and, um, and be allowed to fail where others may not have had that luxury. And so in that sense, it's important for the field to provide a proof of concept, um, to others who want to do the same thing. We developed, we did a lot, spent a lot of time on software development and hardware testing that we are happy to share with other people and on analysis techniques. So, um, in that sense, we kind of helped open the path or made it more, more easy for other groups to do uh, real world neuroscience research. And in the future, do you think that studies like this EEG study, kind of a, a group study looking at um, brain waves and you know brain function as students learn. Do you think that could have any impact on how class is conducted in the future? I think we um, we think it could be a, a complementary source of information. Um, I don't know that it will be a good idea. I mean, not now for sure, but that it ever will be a good idea. We'll have to see to maybe put a headset on somebody and like single them out as a non-attentive person in the classroom. Um, that's, that's, you, you can also, you, there's pro, the teacher is probably a better source of information for that. But as a complementary source of implicit information about the learning process, we think it's extremely valuable. Um, and it, I, we also think it's extremely valuable as an educational tool per se. So as I said, we, at the end of the, of the school year, the kids carried out their own research project. Um, and we're currently extending that to a program that uh, is implemented in a number of schools. This is led by my colleague, Ido Davidesco, who has is super passionate about uh, STEM education. Um, and he has been working with a lot of schools in uh, New York City and beyond, and with teachers also, using our technology um, to teach kids about uh, neuroscience and about uh, the scientific process 
um, and to educate teachers about uh, the, the extent to which neuroscience can inform education. Yeah, that's one of the things I particularly liked about this study is that you did have the students do their own project with their EEG mm-hmm. headsets. Can you tell us a little bit about what they studied? Yeah, so we um, they uh, designed a brain-to-brain synchrony study, which probably may have something to do with have had something to do with the fact that we studied brain-to-brain synchrony. Obviously, there are many other things that you can study, but they were inspired by uh, the things that they had experienced to do a brain-to-brain synchrony study and compare collaborative versus competitive environments. Um, so they had pairs of kids, um, their, co- their fellow students, um, complete a puzzle with colors, um, and this was timed in a certain time frame. Um, and they were, uh, half of the pairs were allowed to do this together and half of the pairs were competing against each other to complete the puzzle, uh, as soon as possible. And we saw a difference between the pairs that were, uh, collaborating and the pairs that were, um, competing with each other, showing that, uh, collaboration promotes synchrony, uh, at the neural level. So we're super proud of them to, uh, to, to, you know, execute this study, which is, you know, yeah. Uh, impressive. Well, Susanna, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. We've linked to Susanna's paper and more information about her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, and maybe leave us a friendly review. You can also find our Patreon page, where we'd love any money you could put in for our hardworking podcasting crew. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 